Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Looking at oil here today, Brent crude and WTI down just about 1% today. They certainly rallied a little bit uh, off of the geopolitical uncertainty over the last several days, but perhaps not as much as traders initially would have thought. Uh, we're going to get the latest from Wells Fitzpatrick. Wells is a managing director, equity research, covering all things uh, exploration and production for SunTrust. Robinson Humphreys based in Houston, Texas. Wells, thanks so much for joining us. So give us a sense of how your stocks, the E&P stocks, kind of have been reacting over the last several days to what appears to be a little bit more volatile uh, energy space. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me on. Um, as you said, prices have jumped, but only about two bucks. Um, you know, that's a, that's a relatively modest move. That tells you that the market isn't pricing in any sort of uh, crisis-related outages. And, you know, of course, without those crisis-related outages, we're going to be in this kind of 55 to 65 range. That being said, what the heightened tension does is it firms us up at the top end of that range, which is, is massively important for the group. I mean, you know, the difference between $55 and $65 on WTI is the difference between two times debt to EBITDA on one and a half, or it's the difference between being free cash flow neutral and having a 7% free cash flow yield for the group. So even though we haven't seen a big move uh, uh, from the recent escalation, it's good to have us firm up in, in the upper end of that range, and that should be able to carry on to a pretty positive 2020 for the names. One interesting development over the past week or so has been the dramatic outperformance of shale companies versus the major oil producers. And I'm wondering uh, whether they are taking advantage of this pop in oil prices to extend their credit lines with banks, to borrow more money, basically to push out any kind of financing gaps in order to prevent or immunize themselves against a drop in the value of oil. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's a great question, um, and, and we'll certainly see it help them in revolver redeterminations in the first quarter here. Uh, for a lot of these guys, that's going to be very important. Uh, you bring up a good point because some of the, uh, the higher uh, debt load guys, I'd point to maybe an extraction, maybe a whiting. Uh, that move from 55 to, or from 65 to, uh, 55 to 65, excuse me, takes them from three times to two times debt to EBITDA. So it's really, it's, it's a heck of a lifeline um, for these guys. Uh, you know, as far as refinancing, the bond market still seems a, a, a little bit cold on the names, but, um, you know, of course that can turn pretty quickly if, uh, uh, if we stay up in this range and the companies throw off the metrics that should allow them to. Well, if, if, Oil does stay up in this higher range, and that, that helps the balance sheets. Do you expect to see a pickup in consolidation activity in your space in 2020, or do you think a lot of the bigger players might sit on the sidelines? It really depends on how the stocks respond. Um, I think that given what we've seen of consolidation, it's more often, I don't want to say force, but uh, you know, the companies being consolidated don't always have the strongest hand. And in so much as a higher oil price will strengthen these companies, I mean, just looking at the 45 companies that we follow, uh, it adds over $10 billion in, in EBITDA. Um, so, so they'll have stronger hands, and they'll be able to, to maybe defend against that a little bit better. The go-it-alone strategy will look a little bit better. Uh, so I, I, I wouldn't expect it to, to accelerate 
uh, uh, that trend with the majors coming in. And the other thing worth pointing out is at this point, the majors have a heck of a lot of shale, uh, especially in the, the Permian Basin, which, as you all know, is, is the favorite basin right now. So there's not necessarily a burning desire for them to get anything unless it is quasi-distressed. And, of course, this this turns that around a little bit. I'm wondering if you could zoom out and give us a sense of how long-lasting you think this pop in oil prices uh, is and whether we, it has more legs in terms of upside. I mean, do you think that barring some further escalation, oil prices can stay where they are, or do you think that the pressure is, is lower, frankly? I think they could stay where they are, and I think that they they can go higher. I mean, you know, I, I understand that it's been three or four days since since the attack, and and so it seems as though there's a calm, but what's worth remembering is that the Supreme Leader declared three days of mourning, and the likelihood of them attacking during that three days was pretty small. Now, that three days is coming to an end, so the next 24 to 48 hours are going to be very important for the oil markets. Um, and, and, you know, Iran has made it very clear that the military option is still on the table, uh, really the first time that that would have come to fruition is today. So uh, it's worth keeping a close eye on. If if you want to look at it from sort of a short, medium, and long-term effects, from a short term, we obviously we got the pop in crude. Another thing that we got about that people don't talk quite as much about is is we got a premium in the U.S. contract. So the U.S. gained about 2 bucks in the immediate aftermath of the attack versus Arab light. Um, and then, of course, Iran abandoned the nuclear deal. So more international pressure could take another 300,000 barrels uh, out of their exports, which would take it to zero. And most importantly, most importantly, and I, I think some people miss this, is that the other thing that this does is that if a Democrat wins in 2020, this makes it so much harder to uh, uh, to find a detente with, with Iran. And that was the nightmare scenario, was that in 2021 you have a detente and one to two million barrels of Iranian crude come back into the market. This makes that a vanishingly small chance of, of happening and, and, of course, underpins a, a more bullish longer-term view on crude. Hey, Wells, what are the companies that you cover doing in terms of production as you look forward to 2020? Are they taking advantage of some, some higher prices here? Well, actually, it's, 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 it's been a little bit of a shift. Um, as you know, the sector's uh, a touch out of favor, to say it, to say it nicely. Um, and, and the companies have been moving towards uh, free cash flow, buybacks, et cetera, which is why, you know, that range of 55 to 65, uh, it's so important to be in the top end of that range when you're throwing off high single-digit free cash flow yields and you can actually deliver uh, uh, you can actually deliver on that. But in general, uh, the growth rate in the U.S. has really, really slowed. Um, I mean, oil uh, or gas, for example, uh, the EIA predicts that gas production will be flat December to December, which is, is really remarkable uh, coming off the growth that we've seen. Oil will be up, but it'll be up a lot more modestly. I mean, you're talking December to December of something like 400,000 versus, you know, prior years you were north of a million so you have a pretty dramatic pullback, and I think that the incremental cash that will come in the door from this higher price will likely be used uh, to fuel those those buybacks, those debt repurchases, um, uh, et cetera, to, to, to really fix the financial situation versus putting more uh, holes in the ground. Wells, Wells Fitzpatrick, thank you so much for being with us. Wells Fitzpatrick, uh, Managing Director, focused on energy and uh, research and uh, EMP sector generally at SunTrust Robinson Humphrey.
Joining us now uh, is David Weiner of Bloomberg News. David, what was the biggest takeaway that you got from this press conference? Yeah, I think I think exactly that uh, he's responding to this sort of uh, lingering question uh, that many people have. What is the U.S. strategy in the Middle East? What is the U.S. strategy in Iran specifically? And I think what he's trying to say is this, you know, this is tethered to a strategy. This is part of business as usual for us. You know, we have a strategy in Iran, which is a maximum pressure campaign uh, to put, you know, maximum pressure economically on Iran with sanctions. Uh, to respond to any threats that they have uh, against U.S. troops or U.S. assets. Uh, and that's what we did when we took out Soleimani. So I think he's sort of trying to um, to really show that, the, that there is this sort of uh, holistic approach. Interesting, David. Is there any sense within Washington, D.C., the extent to which this administration will go, uh, if there is, in fact, a next step, a retaliatory step for the U.S., if, in fact, Iran uh, does retaliate? Yeah, I think we're we're hearing a lot of different, uh, you know, a lot of different signals here, and that's definitely sort of the billion-dollar question here. You know, what what would the U.S. do if Iran took action? Iran is carefully signaling and uh, and making it very clear that they plan to to retaliate, but within some sort of um, you know within some sort of confines of uh, what they call international rules, right? Um, so we'll have to see, but I don't think we have a clear signal uh, of what the U.S. would do. David Weiner, uh, stick with us. We want to bring into the conversation Ariel Cohen. He's senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and founding principal of international market analysis. Uh, Ariel, can you give us a sense of whether we are getting a clear uh, picture of what the U.S. has planned and how far it is willing to go in response to any retaliatory measures taken by the Iranian government? Well, I think uh, Mr. Trump, is uh, articulating a very strong stance, uh, probably went too far uh, referring to cultural sites uh, as we witnessed at this press conference and from the statements of many American politicians, experts, etc. People are very uh, uncomfortable uh, with uh, us um, committing any kind of war crimes, and justifiably so, we shouldn't. But in terms of Mr. Trump being Mr. Trump and uh, messing with Iran's uh, Iranian heads, um, I think uh, he probably did it uh, not fully, uh, not being fully cognizant what he's getting into. In terms of the actual fight, uh, Iran is no match uh, to the United States uh, conventionally, and of course not uh, unconventionally. They don't have nuclear weapons, as far as we know. Uh, but in terms of uh, this indirect warfare that they excel in. Um, terrorist attacks, uh, subversion, uh, weaponizing Shia minorities throughout the Middle East, uh, the creation of the so-called Iranian Crescent from the Mediterranean to the holy city of Qom in Iran. They're doing all that. Uh, They are now uh, less uh, one um, quarterback, and that was Mr. Soleimani, General Soleimani. Uh, He was not a regular military uh, he was a paramilitary leader uh, who was engaged deeply for decades in terrorist activities. And in that respect, his elimination was justified. So, Ariel, I want to get your thoughts on this. Secretary Pompeo said that Iran's nuclear program is more diminished than it was under the JCPOA deal that uh, President Trump uh, pulled out of. Is that, in fact, the case from your understanding? 
Uh, I'm not sure. And these uh, things uh, are very technical, and you need a lot of classified information to really analyze it. If Mr. Pompeo, who has better access to classified information than I do, says so, uh, it would be um, a challenge to all of us uh, to prove him wrong. Uh, the question is how many centrifuges they have running now, and the fact that they already, the Iranians already made a classic Iranian move. We killed Soleimani, they're moving on a different chessboard, in, on the nuclear chessboard. They're saying there are no limitations anymore uh, in terms of enrichment. So that means they can go to enriching all the way up to 90% that they need, 90% of uranium enriched in order to produce nuclear right. weapons. The other question I'm asking myself, to what extent countries with nuclear expertise who are engaged in a strategic competition with us, uh, Russia and China, are going to help Iran now to develop their nuclear, their potential nuclear um, weapons, and especially the means of delivery, the rockets and the warheads. Yeah. I think the war, warheads are absolutely key. Yes. Well, and actually, David, that that brings me uh, to a question that I have, which is, what is the international response, both from allies as well as uh, non-allies of the United States to its actions with respect to Iran? I think, you know, what you're hearing from, you know, everyone, uh, both allies and, and uh, U.S. rivals is, you know, calls to de-escalate. There's a lot of sort of behind-the-scenes uh, discussion going on. Zarif has already said uh, confirmed that he's going to be at Davos, although he didn't get his visa so far to come to New York. He was supposed to be at the United Nations uh, on Thursday for a Security Council meeting. So there's a lot of back-channeling going on, a lot of call for de-escalation. Um, even the sort of, um, you know, the regional uh, U.S. allies, such as Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, uh, they're not interested in an escalation here. Israel has been relatively quiet. Um, I mean, they, they praised the U.S. action, but they're distancing themselves from specific uh, strike on Soleimani. So, um, you know, I think uh, there's going to be a lot of, uh, you know, quite a, quite a uh, significant attempt to reduce tensions here. And I would also note that, you know, Iran has generally responded this way when something like this happens, uh, rhetorically speaking. But in terms of action, uh, they're going to be very careful and calibrated. And I, I, you know, if you if you look back to the last time someone really senior uh, in this apparatus was taken was was killed, uh, Imad Mogniya, he was Hezbollah, but he was very close to Soleimani. Uh, it actually took uh, maybe you know a decade. Uh, it took years until you saw uh, a, a reaction, um, and so it's going to take some time for us to see the the repercussions of this. Ariel, what do you think Iran will do in terms of retaliation? What are their capabilities? Well, Iran demonstrated a totally chilling capability when it knocked out half of Saudi oil-producing um, infrastructure, including the Abu Qaik facility, which is absolutely crucial. I war-gamed a uh, strike on Abu Qaik and other Saudi facilities about 10 years ago, and the re results were much worse, much more catastrophic. That, than what we found today. Why? Because of the massive U.S. oil-producing capacity uh, from shale. So uh, the Iranians are capable of doing a lot of damage to the Saudi oil capacity, and that may tip uh, the global oil market, uh, throwing uh, the prices into a much higher range. On the other hand, people ask me if I think they would block, uh, blockade the Strait of Hormuz, the, the bottleneck, 
through which 40% of global oil is moving out of the Persian Gulf to the global markets? And I said, no, because this will be Iran shooting itself, not in the foot, but in the head, because that would stop Iranian exports. And also on the table is the U.S. warning, not the 52 cultural site, but very uh, important, very vital to Iran, um, Harg Island uh, oil terminal uh, that is responsible for the majority of Iranian oil exports. If they make a big move, uh, their uh, Harg Island oil terminal will be uh, in play and potentially devastated by the U.S. air power. Ariel Cohen, thank you so much for being with us. Ariel Cohen, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council and Founding Principal of International Market Analysis. Also, our thanks to David Weiner, a Bloomberg International government reporter, both commenting on that press conference uh, and the U.S.'s strategy with Iran. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We welcome Jim Bianco, president and founder of Bianco Research. Uh, he is based in Chicago. Interesting, uh, Jim, just wanted to get your thoughts just kind of on the last few days, the the reemergence, if you will, of geopolitical risk coming out of the Mideast. How does that kind of fit into kind of how you're thinking about the markets for 2020? You, you know, the thing about it is everybody's wondering, when is the next recession going to occur? Because it's been 11 years since we've had one, and it's the longest period that we've ever had. And I've been arguing that the natural state of an economy is to expand. It will expand forever and ever, but it never does because something comes along and breaks it. And the leading cause over the last many decades of breaking an economy in a recession has been a spike in energy prices. So when you get these events that you've had in the Middle East over the last week or so, you start to wonder if history is going to repeat itself again. Are we going to have a spike in energy prices, and will that bring down the economy like it has so many times before? And I'll remind you that in 2008, we did get to $147 on West Texas Intermediate by June of 2008. So there was a spike of energy prices then as well, too. A lot of people are expecting that the next move for the Federal Reserve will be lower, that the Fed will cut once more this year. That's what's being priced into the rates market. I'm wondering, do you think that that is required in order to keep the economy going, or do you think that the Fed should cut more or, or not cut at all? Uh, I do I do lean towards the Fed cutting. Um, I think that they will cut one more time, and if I had to... Uh, put a a bias on that, I think that the bias would be that they would cut more than once. Uh, And I think they would probably do it in the first half of the year. They will definitely, once we get into the second half of the year, try and sit on their hands because of the election. But history shows sometimes they're forced to move on election uh, right before elections. Remember 2008 when they did some of the most extraordinary things they've done in their history, literally days before the election. Uh, I do think, though, that if you look at the shape of the yield curve, it is back in positive, but at only 26 basis points. It is well below its long-term average, which would be about 120 basis points. And it is telling us, I, I've always looked at the yield curve as being something very simple, is that when the yield curve is inverted or very flat, it's a market signal that maybe the funds rate or the policy rate is too high. 
especially when it's inverted and even when it's very flat. And I would call 26 basis points where we are now flat. So I think that there's going to be downward pressure on interest rates. And the lack of inflation, the thing that the Fed has been scratching their head about, should be embraced by them and say, look, there isn't any. There's room for us to lower interest rates. And I think they'll eventually come to that view. Jim, do we still need to worry about that short end of the curve, the repo market? That was obviously much in the news several months ago. A little bit less so today? Yeah, no, I definitely think we should worry about it. Um, it is... It has been drugged into submission by the Fed. They've just buried it with, with supply. They've supplied um, repo to the tunes of hundreds of billions of dollars and bought another hundreds of billions of dollars of bills to keep the market quiet. All right, it's quiet. It's not a problem. It's not an immediate worry today, tomorrow, or next week. But what is most concerning is I don't hear a plan from them on how to fix this. I don't hear a plan for them on how to get out of this other than that they just keep throwing the junkie a dime bag every week and saying, here, we'll get you to next week, we'll get you to next week, that being just more repo supply every week, that's not a long-term fix. It's been four months. It's time for them to kind of step up to the plate and say, okay, here's how we're going to fix this problem. I might add, I think I know why. I think they know that the reason is that they've overregulated the, the short end of the yield curve. It has not been able to come to come to grips with that regulation they need to back off that regulation but they've been getting pressure from no less than liz warren sheila bear former fdic head alan bliner former vice chairman of the fed saying don't back off on the regulations okay if you don't do that there's no way to fix this problem right and that's why i think they're kind of stuck right now You've got away with words, Jim Bianco, throwing the junkie a dime bag. Love speaking <laughs> Love with <that>. you. <laughs> Jim Bianco, uh, always a pleasure. President and founder of Bianco Research and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor joining us from Chicago. And actually interesting uh, to see that today the repo operation operated by the New York Federal Reserve was oversubscribed for the first time in a couple of the operations. So showing ongoing demand uh, for uh, this liquidity at a time when there are a lot of questions about the repo operations. Well, the fourth most read story on the Bloomberg terminal uh, this uh, today is about the credit card business and gas stations. Apparently, the gas stations are not prepared to accept the chip reader credit cards. And apparently, that's going to be a big problem. Really interesting story here. Uh, Jenny Serene, the f- reporter on that story, finance reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Jenny, I didn't even know this was a thing. Scope it out for us. What's going on? Um, yeah, I think a lot of people maybe haven't been, um, you know, it's like, it's not something a lot of people pay attention to, but basically five years ago here in the U S we started making this transition to chip cards. Um, and so people should be seeing that, you know, at your regular bodega or your regular grocery store, instead of swiping, we now dip. Um, and gas stations have been a little bit behind. They were given a little bit longer of a deadline to make that upgrade because um, you actually have to rip out the pump from the concrete and you know replace it there. And it's a very big expense. Um, and so the industry kind of recognized that. Um, and so that deadline Wait, is actually coming up this year. You have to lift out, year. replace the whole pump as opposed to just some little 
thing that accepts the credit card? Yes. So the the hardware for this is just a very unusual beast. Um, and so, yeah, these gas station operators actually have to rip out from the concrete. That this sounds huge like a scam system. to me. Yeah. Well, that's actually, interestingly, the story, I got to say, I noticed that the people who uh, were quoted were people who are involved in the installation of some of these uh, events saying <laughs> they're woefully behind. They got to get on this. I mean, how big of a push is it uh, on their part? On their part, I think everyone realizes that the deadline is coming. Um, and so, what that deadline basically means is that after October, if a gas station hasn't upgraded its systems, it will suddenly face all liability for any card fraud that happens at the station. And so, it's a big expense that's coming for these station operators. Um, but yeah, the industry just says it's going to be really tough to make it. On the credit card side, how much more secure is the chip versus the swipe? And by the way, I really, I want to incorporate that into my lexicon. Instead of swiping, we now dip. Dip, right. (laughs) Okay, carry on. Um, Yeah, well, it's, uh, so the chip was basically designed to head off counterfeit card fraud. So that's, uh, you know, I think a few years ago, the real risk was uh, hackers would attach skimming devices onto the point of sale. Um, And so when you swiped your card, they were able to get all of the card data and then basically go and make a counterfeit card and use that wherever they wanted to. So the chip basically heads that off by um, each time you dip your card, it creates a unique number. And so even if a hacker has infiltrated that point of sale device, they can't go and make copies of that card and use it wherever they want. So that kind of fraud is what this is really addressing. And and it is a lot safer. You know, we've seen uh, counterfeit fraud dollars fall by, you know, more than 50% since the 2015 deadline. And so it has addressed that. Now, Hackers don't just go away because you've taken away one form. So we've seen a, a subsequent increase in other types of card fraud that the industry is now trying to address. But um, at least for counterfeit card fraud, the chip did do what it was supposed What's to do. What's different? I, when I'm over in London for business, I notice people just kind of tapping their card. And so when I walk up to get a pay for a sandwich, the the person behind the counter just like sighs because now they have to <laughs> dip it and do it. The American sign is it, here. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Sign something. What's that technology? Why don't we have that? It's uh, it's coming. So the U.S. is woefully behind the rest of the world in terms of adoption of tap to pay. Um, and, but it's coming. So you've seen it so far. The MTA has started to install these readers on the subway. So you should start to see that more and more. And I think retailers kind of um, in a lot of ways follow transit. So when you see these big transit operators adopting that technology, you should start to see other retailers. But yeah, it's this one area of finance where you know the U.S. has long been a leader in so many things within the credit card industry, but this is where we really fall behind. Well, going back to gas stations, if they're spending all this money to implement entirely new pumps to dip rather than swipe, <laughs> are they going to have to do it again so that we can tap? So it should be one upgrade. Um, That's what you've seen with a lot of the other retailers who had the 2015 deadline. Um, So it should be one upgrade. Now, just because a retailer adopts the dipping does not mean they have to adopt tapping. So some retailers have said they don't want to. Um, There's a lot of different reasons for that. you know, a lot of retailers are starting to come up with their own forms of mobile payments. So they maybe don't want, you know, someone walking in and using Apple Pay. So you, you've seen a little bit of kind of differentiation. It's another area for retailers to kind of catch up. Uh, you know, they've got a lot of catching up to do. With I, this I have to say, I could just imagine someone coming up to one of those things and just like taking their card, just like smacking it <laughs> and then dipping it and sliding it. I mean, honestly, just people are getting go yeah. a little confused after a while. Jenny, do you carry cash? 
I am a weird millennial that does carry cash, yes. You are a weird millennial. Okay, because <laughs> this kind of goes to the issue of kind of the cashless society, and you actually see some stores. There's a restaurant, I guess, are right here on Lexington Avenue, that, you know, sign out front, and we do not accept cash. Yeah, but it's kind of a gimmick, isn't it? Is it? I don't know. It's, you know, it's actually a big debate. Um, folks actually are now saying that going cashless might improper, uh, you know, take advantage of poor people who only carry cash and don't have right. access to financial services. I carry cash. I always carry cash. Yes. I carry cash. No one asks, but I do. But not that anyone should really know that. If I'm really a gas station that. owner going back, how much does it cost? It sounds like a lot. Um, so it, it can vary. It, the averages are right now about $30,000 per store um, okay. to upgrade all of your pumps. And, you know, that's really hard for an industry where profit margins are less than 2%. Right, so okay. it's a really big outlay at any point in time um, that these gas station operators are going to have to make. Swipe, dip, tap. Yep. Swipe, dip, tap, and swing. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us, Jenny Serene. I'm gonna get I'm gonna get absolutely uh, pummeled for saying that. John, uh, Jenny Serene is a Bloomberg Finance reporter joining us here in our 1130 studios or interactive broker studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.